0: Um certainly um I would say reading and writing should not be happening in the meditation hall. Um sleeping also, I mean if you're doing lying meditation and you fall asleep. Um one thing um sometimes we do on these retreats if if uh you know if somebody just falls asleep and it's silent you don't need to worry about that but if somebody starts to snore, you know, you're welcome to get up and touch them gently on the arm or the leg and um, if you have that experience when you are doing lying meditation you will know that that's what it means (laughs) if somebody is touching you. Um, Beeping devices, you know, uh, ongoing beeping like that one that just happened that didn't seem to go off. um, That's something I think that uh, would be helpful to not have in the hall the individual solitary beeps you've practiced in Burma <laughs> <laughs> nothing <for> a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and we're probably going to have some chainsaws here next week so um, <laughs> the beep is not going to seem like much when the chainsaws begin um, so you know uh Whatever happens in the hall use it as practice. Watch your mind. <laughs> yeah. What about writing during instruction or during- oh, oh that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Writing during the instructions and the yes. No problem. oh go ahead and then then Kathy after go ahead Mm -hmm. you mentioned previously about uh, you had a version that you've worked with I'm just curious if if you could say more about that how I worked with a version yeah wow that's a whole talk (laughs) 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 let's see what can I call up um hmm So the first thing I think I'll say is um, many of us have kind of propensities to various patterns of mind and um, um, the kind of three root unwholesome tendencies of greed, aversion, and delusion. Each of us may have a kind of a a tendency more towards one of those than than another. Um, some people seem to orient towards... Um, when, th- when something feels off, they orient towards, how can I find something that feels good? You know, when s- and other people, when something feels off, they orient towards, how can I get rid of this thing that feels off? How do I fix this or change this or control this? Other people may orient towards... Um, being confused. (laughs) I don't know what to do here. What do I do about this? Um, So each of us has a kind of a, a, may have a kind of a tendency towards one or the other of those. And for myself, um, definitely aversion has been a very strong um, patterning in my mind. So I've spent a lot of time watching aversion, getting to know it in my mind. Um, the um One of the first things that's helpful um, is to get to know different flavors of aversion. you know there's so many different um, ways that aversion manifests. I think I mentioned some of them the other day um, can be really um, subtle, like irritation or annoyance, might be more uh, obvious, like hatred um, so, you know, it, it spans the range of, of uh, emotion, in a way, from very mild, hardly noticeable, to really glaringly obvious. And actually, for myself, um, looking at a, a form of aversion was my very first meditation practice, when I first met the Dharma I wasn't interested in sitting but I was interested in understanding my mind and in particular at that time um, there was a situation in my life that had created a lot of pain and a lot of anger at a particular person and I found that the the anger was basically uh, running my life making me almost non-functional at times. I was in the Peace Corps at the time, and I was working in a a development bank. And I would be sitting at the computer. I was a computer volunteer. I had volunteered my computer services to help this development bank. And I would find myself sitting at the computer frozen in a rage in my mind. And um, somebody sent me a book on the Dharma and I think I mentioned this the other day, I don't remember. Um, and something, you know, I read this book, and I didn't understand much about this book. I mean, I didn't understand, it was, it was Everyday Zen by Joko Beck. And I didn't understand much about what it said. I did get this little, glean, this little bit of information that it might be helpful to observe your emotions rather than act on them. And my initial response to that was, well, how's that going to help? You know, what good is that going to do? Observe my anger? Isn't that just going to make it worse? But, um, something must be, it's the third, the third, I'm just feeling some, some metta compassion. Um, So I had tried in my, in my life, um, I felt like I had tried pretty much everything to um, figure out how to live and be happy, and um, I felt like I, I had kind of hit bottom in a way with this situation. So something in me just said, well, you know, I've tried everything else and nothing else has worked, so I might as well try this. I'm turning to look at my anger, and um, I did I wasn't interested in sitting meditation, but I was interested in understanding that anger in my mind, in my daily life, because that's where it was happening. You know, I was you know sitting at the computer, walking down the street. I just find myself non-functional, um, absorbed in this rage. And so the very first practice that I did was really simple. It was just, I committed to myself. I would recognize and be aware. And I didn't even know what it meant to be mindful. You know, what does it mean to be aware of anger? It's like, I don't know. What does that mean? Um, but but I did just practice this really simple thing of, well, committing to myself, well, whenever that happens, I'll just recognize it. And so I started that. And and um, when the anger when I first noticed, the first time I kind of became conscious of the anger and, re- and remembered that I told myself I'd pay attention to it, I'd you know, try to follow this teaching that I'd read in this book, um, I was in a full-blown rage when I woke up into it. And it's like, wow, I said I'd be am I aware of this. What does that even mean? I don't know. But yeah, angry, yep, I'm angry, okay, yep, I know that. And it's like, what do I do with this? I don't know what I do with this. I guess I go back to work. And um, that actually, in retrospect, was pretty powerful. Because I saw in retrospect that having seen the anger and noticed it, oh, anger is happening. I could go, go, go back to work before I wasn't able to work. So just that very simple practice of i mean this is for intense intense emotion that very simple simple practice of recognizing that it happens it can be that simple i used that practice for uh, a number of months just that. I mean, that's all I could understand from this book, you know, this book. I didn't have any teachers to tell me what it meant or, you know, what it meant to pay attention to my body or how to pay attention to my body. It was just, so I was just essentially recognizing, yes, there's anger present at the grossest, most obvious level. And that one thing ended up being really potent. Because over the course of the next few months, as I watched um, I began seeing that, um, as the mind re- remembered about this practice that I had set up for myself, you know, the mind, I, when I when I remembered when I was angry and I remembered, yes, I'm angry. Be attentive to this. I noticed over the course of several months that um, that the remembering about it happened earlier in the cycle of anger. So I was not spun out into a non-functional rage. It was more like a normal anger. Much easier to take in. Much easier to be with. And then, you know, just kept watching, kept watching. And it was, it's almost like magic in a way, the way the, the mindfulness... I, I knew almost nothing about mindfulness. What it meant, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, I couldn't have told you what it felt like to be aware. I, nothing. I was just doing this really simple thing of recognizing anger. And, um, you know, some months into this practice, uh, just uh, what I had done was like orient, kind of commit myself. Whenever I notice anger, I'll wake up for it. And so what I now look back and think happened over that process is that having woken up into anger over and over again. And really, when I look back at this too, this practice is what I was doing. Just notice what's obvious, wake up, notice what's obvious, and move on, you know, keep going. Um, So what I understand now kind of happened was that um, the simple recognition over time of, oh, this is anger, anger here, oh, anger here, another anger, over and over again getting familiar with anger, the mind began to recognize it and began to get attuned to that. It also really got to know the fact that anger was dukkha. And I wouldn't have put it in those terms either because I didn't know what dukkha was. But um, it understood, my mind understood very clearly the uh, suffering nature of anger. There was a one point where I realized that I had this belief. And I was in the South Pacific. I was like 7,000 miles away from California. And um, I had this belief that somehow this anger that I was feeling was going to hurt the person that I was angry at. There was there's a kind of a retribution feeling of wanting that person to suffer. I'm suffering. You should suffer too. And that... Um, um, was really clearly exposed as being ludicrous, because there I was seven dozen miles away, you know, he was in California, I was in Vanuatu, and it was pretty clear that he wasn't getting any uh, hit of anything <laughs> <laughs> from my anger. And so that that was exposed, that belief, that kind of that belief that somehow my being angry was going to do something to somebody else. But what I I felt, I clearly knew, was that this is hurting me. So that was part of the learning. You know, that was part of the learning. The willingness to meet something difficult like anger, aversion. We get to know, we get to um, get really familiar with how it impacts our system. It doesn't feel very good. It's not uh, a wholesome, healthy place to be. And so the mind begins to understand that and begins to um, learn how not to go there. Just over time. Um, it, it it learns that. It, understa- it understands that. And so this, I think, too, is part of the power of this practice. You know, the willingness to just meet whatever's happening. Recognize it. Notice what's obvious over and over again. The mind gets its education in what causes suffering and begins, you know, uh, I've talked about the kind of natural homing mechanism towards um, well-being. To me, this is how it works, that um, in being mindful of unskillful states of mind, we learn without question, this is not helpful. And then just to continue this story, um, several months of observing this anger, it's kind of like, I, th- I think the mind got really attuned to you know, just the the initial arisings of, of anger. Because one day I was in my kitchen and I was cutting an apple, and um, I, you know, wasn't like, you know, saying be mindful, try to be mindful. I was apparently relatively aware at that point, but I was cutting an apple, and um, in the moment of cutting that apple, I saw a thought about being with the person I was angry with. And the the place I was with in my memory with him was at a fruit stand. So I um, saw the connection between what I was doing and the memory. And I also saw in that moment this really strong urge to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry. Um having spent several months... No, I I, I noticed I was not angry in that that very moment, but I saw that urge. And I was like, yeah, mm, jump on that thought and get angry at him. And um, seeing that urge, there was something in my mind that just said, oh, you don't have to go there. And I stood there, actually, for a few moments, waiting to get angry because having him arise in my mind and not anger not arise in my mind um, had not happened. So, you know, I stood there waiting to get angry and I didn't get angry. (laughs) And at that moment, this immense gratitude for the practice washed over me. This immense sense of the... uh, the recognition of the power of the practice washed over me. And I think that probably diverted any potential um, further thoughts that would have hooked me because it's very easy. So many of you have seen, you know, when um, thoughts are really familiar, um, patterns are really familiar, you know, you, you let it go and then, you know, you let it go again and then, Oh, it kind of comes back. And at some point it just grabs you. But, you know, I think that really that just amazement at the power of the the mindfulness to see something so subtle. You know, what it felt like to me, the feeling of it was um, the mind was reaching out for the anger and the mind itself recognized that way is going to burn you. And so it let it go, almost like, your hand would draw back from a, touching a hot pot on a stove. Um, it wasn't something I had to consciously do, even though it came into my mind, you don't have to go there. In retrospect, it was more that the mind didn't go there. And the mind didn't go there because it really knew that suffering would result. You know, it was uh, its like, yeah, if you go that way, you know where that's headed. So... This, this, uh, this example um, demonstrates so much of um, both the practice of just the simplicity of how simple it can be um, and how powerful it can be in that simplicity and the, the learning that we uh, have to meet around the willingness to recognize, yeah, this is dukkha. You know, this state of mind is suffering. It's not wholesome. It's not helpful. To me, that um, unfolding of that um, situation, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't get angry again with him, but, but that moment, actually, that moment of seeing the anger not arise, that was a moment I got convinced this practice is for me <laughs> you know this this is I'm going to do this for the rest of my life I'd like I knew that this that this practice was so powerful the power to see into the intention in the mind and to free ourselves from our habits essentially that that, that, that capacity exists so you know that's that was my very first practice with working with aversion you know just notice it. And in some ways, you know, um, I benefited from not having all kinds of techniques. You know, I read this book, but it's like, I don't get it. But, okay, I'll try to be aware of my anger. And just in that very simple way of recognizing, I learned so much. So much. And then I came back from the Peace Corps, and I learned all kinds of tools. You know, all kinds of things about paying attention to the body, letting go of the thought. So these are some kind of traditional tools that we use around working with aversion. You know, aversion arises, we recognize that it has that cycle of thought and aversion. And if we can let go of the thought and feel it in the body, that has a very a, a, a powerful impact of kind of cutting the, 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 the fuel line <laughs> to the um, escalation. Of the emotion. So that's a very powerful practice, Um, you know, coming into an embodied experience around the emotion. At at another point, I mean, this this anger at this person lasted for a number of years for me. Um, And at one point, having come back from the Peace Corps and learned all of these tools. You know, I was using all of these variety of tools on this uh, anger when it arose. And at some point I recognized, you know, the very investigation of this anger is hooking me back into the anger. And when I try to be mindful of the anger using all these tools, I just find myself lost in the anger. And so I recognized at that point, well, okay, maybe it's not so helpful to do this investigation at this point. And so what I began doing then was to practice um, something I mentioned, I think the other day, of kind of gently setting aside. It's like I, I would feel the anger arise. And for me, it somehow often seemed to happen when I was walking. You know, I'd be walking and, you know, the mind would be doing, going off into things It'd think about this person and um, the anger would come up. And I would notice it after some point. And I, I would kind of meet the anger and bow to it and say, I see you, you know. And, and by that point I had recognized it was kind of, you know, asking for attention in a way, you know, kind of like little kids say, pay attention, pay attention to me. Kind of like the anger was doing that in my, um, in my mind. And I realized that the tool somehow, what I was doing wasn't so helpful. So it's like I'd bow to my anger and I'd say, I see you and... I'll make a bargain with you. I'll pay attention to you when my mindfulness gets stronger. But right now, you do your thing. I'm just going to let you be. I'm not going to try to stop you. But I'm also not going to pay attention to you right now. And I put my attention in my feet while I was walking. So just turn to something really neutral. Uh, I did that for months, that practice. I let go of like trying to use tools and techniques on, on this anger. And just, oh, I see you not now. Initially, it was like I had this conversation in my mind with that anger. It's like, yes, I see like the conversation I just told you, you know, it's like I talked to that part of my mind. And that whole thing kind of got compressed or just kind of summarized and not now. And in my mind that that summarized the entire thing of gentle uh, acknowledgement, set aside, And I'll meet you again when I'm stronger. So not now. And coming to something neutral. So I did that a lot. And another interesting thing happened with that exploration. This was probably two years into this exploration of anger. Um, And um, what I began noticing at that point was that, you know, I don't know how long it took me to recognize this, but I began recognizing that the anger started appearing less frequently. You know, that, uh, you know, it would be like, you know, every week maybe I'd see it, and then every couple weeks, and then every few months, and, and then one day the thought arose in my mind, wow, it's been a long time since I felt that anger. What happened to it? And then, in that moment, of course, this person ap- appeared in my mind. Thoughts about this person appeared in my mind, and um, the anger—I couldn't even conjure up the anger. And it's like, wow, you know, it's kind of looking for it. <laughs> Where did it go? <laughs> uh, and I didn't actually believe it was gone. You know, I kind of thought it'll come back. <laughs> you know, it, it'll resurface at some point but it didn't it has never resurfaced. it disappeared while i wasn 't looking at it. This is another um, thing that I found very interesting about uh, the practice now that setting aside i mean I with all intention meant with it. you know, I didn't, I didn't think it would actually disappear without my looking at it. I, I really thought, and I think this is a, a proclivity of my mind, the investigative mind, I really thought I had to put it under a microscope and look at it and pick it apart and figure all out the pieces and see just how everything was hooked to everything and how it went to my past and my relationships in the past. And I thought I had to undo all of that in order to be free of that anger. But what happened was that setting it aside, letting it be, not repressing it, being mindful of something else, seemed to have a very um, healing effect on that anger. It, it no longer fed it. It's kind of like the, um, you know, one of the ways I think about it now in terms of the neurological understandings that I've learned in the last few years about plasticity of mind You know, our minds develop these ruts of um, habit. You know, and the Buddha said it in his words, what one frequently ponders, that becomes the inclination of your mind. And neurologically, what one frequently ponders, that gets shored up by more and more neuronal connections. When we uh, practice something or engage in a particular habit of mind frequently, the brain in its not-self way figures, wow, this one must be important. Better add more connections to this one. Um, (laughs) So um, in the not using that, something I I learned through the the What the Bleep movie, did you see that What the Bleep movie? Something I learned from that one is when we don't engage in a pattern. When we stop engaging in a pattern, those neurons basically in their not-self way recognize, oh, this one's not so important anymore. Those neuronal connections disappear. So that's my understanding neurologically what happened there. I like just, you know, set it aside and didn't engage with it. And eventually, over the course of quite a while, the, the mind just like let go of all of those hooks to that pattern. So there's some really simple ways that are really powerful for working with aversion. You know, we can talk about some of the complicated, more complex doing tools, and we do that a lot on our on our retreats. You know, it's like how to work with these difficult states of mind. But in my own experience with this very difficult, very potent state of mind, the two practices that were most powerful were the most simple. Just notice it. Just notice what you notice. Notice the obvious, and notice it. Set it aside. Without a, without aversion, those two were the ones that really freed, helped to free me, and gave me immense understanding. The first one gave me immense understanding about my mind's relationship to the anger. The second one allowed it to release. So, <laughs> Kathy.
1: I'm aware, you know, my experience is that I'm aware that there's a dukkha, there's a selfie going on, but, but, um, but I can't name what it is. Um, uh, I'm wondering how important it is, like should I be shining the light of the awareness a little more, and then even in just what you're talking about, um, is, there, is there, is it, in order to uproot it, in order to like, like, like not have it fill in that, that space in consciousness, um, is there, should it, should there
0: be more awareness there? Um, I think, I mean, what, what you describe is that as, as soon as, I mean, as soon as you, um, kind of turn your attention to it, you know, it kind of lets go, right? Um, I've not found it helpful to try to hold on to defilement in order to look at it. Um, the, um, just notice what's obvious. <laughs> and, and it may not be, I mean, you know, it may not be incredibly clear in a way. You know, sometimes, sometimes for me, it's like there's just this like flitting through of some like vague cloud. It's like, whoa, what was that? you know, and so just kind of, for me, it's just kind of taking in the overall flavor without necessarily trying to dig, um, and and like that, that example that I just gave, um, those flavors, you know, if they flit through kind of frequently, over time, the mind begins to um, get you know with just that recognition of just like oh there oh there's that flavor again oh there it is again and just the obvious knowing the obvious of that flavor the mind begins to attune to it and maybe will get a little bit more information about it you know over time to not to not have to feel like you have to do it on your schedule you know, to be more patient about the the process that that the cultivation of wisdom Um, and the understanding happens very naturally in its own time. And when we're bringing an agenda of trying to figure out, I mean, it, it served me actually, I mean, it has served me at times to have that agenda, but it also can get in the way because sometimes that energy of look at, shine the light of awareness more you know do that that little bit of doing sometimes that little bit of doing will obscure what's actually there so you know i i with those really subtle ones i actually find backing off of the uh intensity of the doing reveals more so you know play with it in your own experience and see See what happens. You know, play with both. You know, see what happens if you if you bring a little bit more. It almost sounds like, in a way, that there may be. You know, bringing sometimes like with thoughts. Um, We we often have a habit of uh, bringing a kind of intentional mind to observing a thought. And what happens when we do that? It's like the thought disappears instantly. And Sayada Utajaniya says that that's kind of like we're playing target practice. You know, it's like, oh, there's a thought. There's a thought. You know, shooting our thoughts with the mindfulness. There's a kind of a way that we direct the intensity of our mindfulness towards the thought. And it just obliterates the thought. So uh, there's also the possibility of, of, with both thought and with kind of more subtle defilements you know it almost might be that the bringing of the intentionality of the awareness makes I mean it makes it vanish um, and if there, if there is an interest in investigation almost a backing off of that intensity it's almost like the intensity of bringing the mindfulness obscures what that state is does that make sense
1: investigating it, investigating that. Because I'm, I'm a kind of an awareness that there's dukkha, there's some selfing, you know, and, it, and so um, and it sounds like what you're saying, in order to get to know it um, more fully, uh, it, well, first that it actually for the purpose of this practice, but it is it's important to get to know it more fully. So, so, so either try back
0: or seeing what, what, what is the skillful thing to do to... to yeah, play, play with both. But, but to actually to get to know it. Yeah. Like, if I can just say this is dukkha, but, but it's really most helpful to actually do, some, do well, one or the other to get to know it more fully. Well, I would say it's more of not doing to get to know it more fully. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to me, that's, that's more my experience, actually, that... Um, when experience gets more subtle the less doing allows the more clear seeing so you know that it, so playing with it yourself and seeing is it you know if you do something if you bring some kind of active investigation can you really investigate those subtle states or do they just you know disappear or kind of feel like they're you know How, you know, Mercury is, you know, if you try to push on Mercury, it just like goes into pieces, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, it's like, it's like the energy of that doing, choosing, oh, I want to look at this, makes it go away, whereas the less doing allows it to be seen. uh, That's actually been something in in many ways I've discovered, Um, looking at the breath, for example, you know as the as the breathing um, as the mind settles in concentration, you know the breathing gets more and more quiet you know it gets more and more subtle and um, to be able to have the uh, mindfulness meet the more subtleties it's like the mindfulness needs to get quieter to meet that it's similar with these um you know more subtle states of mind, the more quiet. Settled back the mindfulness is the more it can receive the subtlety.
1: So, this sort of follows on that. Um, I I wonder whether that backing off not only came with subtlety,
0: but also were you an over efforter to begin with? Oh, certainly, yes.
1: Hmm. and even, you know, so I don't yet see a lot of shift in it.
0: It just seems to settle into that state where I don't need to get up. And are you um, aware, clearly aware of that state? Yeah, mm-hmm. Check your relationship with the state. Well, it's enjoyable, but are you? Yeah. So notice the enjoyment, okay. um, and um, you know, is there? I mean, partly there is this question, perhaps in there: is this enough? Yeah. So is that happening? Is, is that? But is that happening in the state? Is this enough? Certain something no, be happening. No, I'm just told <laughs> happy to
1: be in the state. Okay.
0: So Um, you know, different minds have different ways in. Just, just you know, bring bring the you know. Be aware of that state. I mean, there's nothing particularly you need to do with it. Notice your relationship. If you set, settle in that state and stay there for a long enough time, something will change. <laughs> 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 some minds naturally tend towards, you know, the concentration place, and you know, some minds naturally tend towards activity, like Sayadaw said in in the in that thing I read yesterday. You know, so your mind may naturally. Um, tend towards that place and then when you get up you know you're working in the managing role there's plenty to observe there you know you don't really need to bring up things or you know it's like oh oh i'm in the state of calm you know what should i be observing here you know (laughs) what should i bring in to look at that's doing that's you know constructing so you know just just settle settle in there and uh, if you start to go to sleep, you start to space out, get bored. Notice, notice your relationship. Notice how that, how that happens. Yeah. Josh. hmm you can play with that and see what serves you. Um, for some people it's really helpful to uh, consciously engage, think about, explore, you know stay with instructions um, or uh dhamma talks at other times you know it may be helpful to just kind of be doing, you know, you're more um, just noticing what's happening. I mean, you'll be hearing in that space. And sometimes approaching a Dhamma talk from that way, um, you know, while you're practicing, something comes in and is understood and applied and known and realized as you're listening. You know, the, the, the way of listening by, you know, Using your conscious thought and thinking about, and that will that can get in the way of that kind of um, recognition, so try it for yourself both ways. see what happens. see which is more helpful for you, and at sometimes it may be more helpful to actually listen, or it may be that part of the time you're I remember on on one retreat. And I would just kind of be sitting there, you know, just taking things in and letting it flow through, letting it flow through. And then something would come up, and and that would intrigue me, something that in the Dhamma Talk would come up. And, and the mind would stay with that one for, you know, five minutes. And, uh, and then it would move off, and then I'd just be, you know, listening. So it wasn't that I stopped listening. It wasn't that I tuned it out. And, and it was just like, it was more like, what's applicable in this moment? You know, it was like with the, the, with the, the Dhamma that's being uh, offered, what's applicable in this moment, and what resonates in this moment. Um, and at other times, I sit there and I listen, and I take notes. So there's no one answer that's more looking at it uh, what's skillful for you, and um you'll get to know kind of over time um, perhaps you know maybe your mind is feeling more settled and and doesn't want to do that conscious engagement and just wants to receive the the um the words and and see what it does with them, at other times it may be that there's actually the the sense of what would be helpful to, to listen to this. The way I've worked with um, this kind of thing, I don't have too many nightmares, but um, um, in the waking up, you know, it's it's like getting lost in thought when we're awake. It's like the mind has gone off into a world and thoroughly believed it. And then we wake up, and that chain of thought has had an impact on our being um, often you know i've seen in my own experience that when I do have nightmares you know I wake up it's like the whole body is kind of in a state so the um, uh, the practice for me is to just recognize okay this is what's happening now you know, to to be with the that's what's happening now let go of the of the um, I mean, the, the nightmare is gone, it's over. Um, you may notice in the being with that some of the images come back, you know, from the nightmare, that the, some of the images might be filtering back in. And then just notice again, oh, how do those images impact me? You know, what happens? Oh, that image comes and then, whew, I get a flood of fear through the body. Okay, there's that fear. Um, and, uh, you know, just to be with, to be with it in this very uh, gentle way, you know, this, just noticing what's obvious about the state. Now, sometimes in waking up from a nightmare like that, it's, it's, got, a, it's got a real stickiness to it, kind of like some of our um, difficult patterns of mind have a stickiness to them. And if, if, you, if you find you're kind of getting sucked back into the nightmare, then it may be helpful to turn your attention, you know, kind of do a skillful distraction Bring something into your mind that helps you to uh, let go of those um, those images. Um, a different use of this for me. There was um, a time, so this isn't related to nightmares, but there was a time when I was doing concentration practice on retreat, and I found that the mind, in trying to go to sleep, couldn't let go of that intensity of focus. So in that way, it, there's a similarity that there's a way that the mind kind of latches onto something and can't let go of it. Like having a dog with its teeth stuck into something. And um, what I what I decided to do, because I needed sleep, I knew I needed sleep, um, was to put a really neutral thought in my mind that, wouldn't have any um, hooks to it. So not, not replacing it with a thought like, oh, being, being on the beach in Tahiti or something, you know, or being with friends or that, that could engender all kinds of um, emotions itself. But just something, and I put an image in my mind that was not going to generate much in the way of, of emotions. And I picked an image from my childhood actually not from my childhood, but an image from a child children's book um, of Winnie the Pooh hanging onto a balloon, floating with a balloon. And I put that image in my mind and that allowed my mind to unhook from what it had its teeth into, to consciously put that image in my mind, allowed my mind to let go. So I've not tried that with nightmares, but something like that might help if the if if your mind has you know kind of hooked into that nightmare, if just being with the feelings, um, if the kind of the awareness of what's happening in the present moment, as a result of the nightmare, doesn't allow it to dissipate, then something like that, where you're actively, I called it a an active, you know, a, a, a skillful distraction. I was distracting my mind with something that had a kind of a neutral a tone for me. Um, So does that speak to you? yeah for me, i've done i I've, I've done quite a bit of lying meditation, and um, for myself, I have a posture that I use for lying meditation. Very specific posture. Um, and that posture seems to help me know, this is meditation time. Um, and helps to kind of keep me alert. I have a sleeping posture, and that helps my mind to know, oh, it's time to fall asleep. Um, When I'm in that sleeping posture, I don't actively try to do the practice. Sometimes it's happening. You know, sometimes it's, 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 going um, and it is possible to watch yourself fall asleep and be aware all the way into falling asleep, that's possible um, but for myself that that simple practice of having a specific posture for lying meditation helps between those two um, and also when you feel like it's time to go to sleep, you know, sometimes, actually, I heard one teacher say, you know, when people um, said, you know, I can't, can't. it's like the mind won't let go of the practice. And uh, the teacher said, well, make the resolve. You know, say, may the mind stop practicing. (laughs) You know, So consciously, you know, letting go, you know, consciously letting go of the practice, at least active letting go of the active doing of the practice Know, any conscious involvement in the practice so much of this practice is about yes yes yeah and and it's great to watch that actually i mean this practice has given me a, a great appreciation for just how far the mindfulness can go i mean watching myself fall asleep it's possible so there doesn't have to be such a dividing line and um, you know, if the mind is tired enough, it will, it will fall asleep. So, why don't we stop there. And just take a few minutes to settle in. And just how you are right now. There's no need to change the state of your mind in order to meditate. If you're aware, that's enough.